Welcome to Evolve to Succeed, the podcast that brings together business owners, leaders and experts to talk about their business journeys and provide them with invaluable insights and explore the link between personal and business success. I am your host, Warren Munson, founder of Evolve. I have previously founded, grown and successfully exited three businesses in the business services and technology sectors. I have a passion for helping and advising businesses and seeing them succeed. We all know that leading and running a business comes with its own unique joys and challenges and Evolve provides the advice, guidance and support to the business, you and your teams on that journey, be that if you're starting, growing or looking to exit or step away from your business. We do this through our Ignite, Thrive and Optimize programs and services, which includes strategic advice, coaching and mentoring, leadership training, funded business support and so much more. If you want to learn more about Evolve, then please do go to evolveadvisory.co.uk or connect and message me on LinkedIn. For now though, let's just get on with the show. This week, I'm talking to Paul Lester, a man of incredible wisdom and experience in the realm of business and leadership. Over the course of a career that, by his own admission, he fell into by accident, Paul is or has been the CEO and chairman of a number of larger PE-backed businesses and also FTSE-listed businesses such as the VT Group, Graysby, McCarthy and Stone, AMP Group, Marine Covenant Turbines, John Lang Infrastructure Fund and many more. I was delighted to get Paul on the show to tap into his incredible pool of knowledge and experience that he's accrued over such an impressive career. So amongst other topics, Paul and I discuss what he learned from extended management stints in the US and France, his views on private versus IPO companies, how the boardroom and his leadership style has changed over the years, and what an owner-managed business should be looking for if they feel the need to put a chairman or non-exec in place. As you'll hear, for all of his success, Paul is also an individual of great humility and humour. And it was a great privilege to spend some time with someone who has achieved so much and still possesses lots of energy and passion and is truly driven by a love of what he does. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome, Paul, to the Evolved to Succeed podcast. Thank you very much, Warren. Really looking forward to our conversation, hearing more about your career and some of those kind of values and principles in which you've sort of lived your life by and had such a successful career and seeing perhaps how the world as business has evolved over that time. But for our listeners, perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about your business career. Yeah, I started off uh, as an engineer and got qualified through College Street University. And, um, but then having done quite well at engineering, I realised I thought engineering was a bit boring and I quite like the sale and commercial side of the businesses because I was doing what they call a student apprenticeship. So you spend time back in industry with one company, Doughty at the time, and the rest um, at College Stroke University. So I then twisted their arm to sponsor me to do uh, what was Diploma in Management Studies, MBA now. And what I didn't realise was that gave me both commercial and engineering capability. So surprisingly, not not long after that, probably five years after I'd moved into a few management jobs, I ended up as um, uh, as a CEO, um, or sorry, a general manager, it was a technical description then, 
um, of a company owned by Schlumberger, which is a large oil search company based out of the States. And that was really the start of my career in general management. So it happened more by accident than design. It's really interesting, isn't it? And it's interesting to hear that you started out effectively on an apprentice program because, you know, modern apprenticeships are becoming more the rage, aren't they? Degree apprenticeships, those kind of things. I mean, what's your view on this kind of debate between, you know, school leavers going to university or taking apprenticeships? I think it depends on the person. If If you're truly academic and you enjoy the environment of a university you should go down that route. If you are a little bit more, let's say, practical and you feel that a university course and the uh, staying at a university, etc., isn't for you, then I think the modern apprenticeship is a really good way of still achieving the same objective. In fact, my daughter, my youngest daughter, um, did a modern apprenticeship. And when she was discussing with, with me, I was pushing her towards going to university. And I thought, what the hell am I doing? For Christ's sake. <laughs> <laughs> it worked for you. <laughs> go, go and do it. Yeah, yeah. it was slightly different in my day. But, it, you know, the principles are the same. And she's also dyslexic like myself. And um, you've got to work way harder to pass exams. Yeah. But I think it does make you a hard worker. And she certainly is a hard worker. And it's absolutely suited her 100%. So she spent time with the company that sponsored her and time studying and at college. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan. And I think it all goes down to the individual. Mm, definitely. I suppose. And that's the thing, isn't it, in life is that we are all different, aren't we? So, yeah, play yeah. to your strengths and see what suits you. And it's interesting that you talk about dyslexia um, and, and those kind of things. And, you know, what impact do you think that has had on you both from a perhaps a positive as well as a negative point of view in terms of your career, Paul? Well, I didn't know I was dyslexic till my two, ch- two of my three children um, were diagnosed with dyslexia. And I went, this is a bit of a coincidence. And when they went through all the issues, um, heart, you know, takes a lot longer to read something. Spelling is absolutely atrocious. And I went, oh, that's just like I used to be. So the answer to your question is I... I ended up doing uh, an A-level double maths and physics because I didn't want to go anywhere near English or history or anything I had to read and regurgitate. And uh, I had a good memory for figures and and I was analytical. So I would say it pushed me very much in that direction, rightly or wrongly, although it's worked out pretty good. Um, But again, I would say... It also it also makes you read things quickly because I know mm. if I start reading things properly and slowly, but you do miss things. I do get things mixed up, and I still do that today, which can, you know, um, you learn to cope with it. It's a coping you you learn coping mechanisms, which is what my children got taught. Mm. They, uh, but it does make you work harder because you've got to work that extra bit, those extra hours to um, get through reading things and studying things. It's it's harder work. And I suppose it is when you become more self-aware, isn't it? As you develop your career and you mm. mature, you probably did then, I assume, put some people around you in your team that would cover the detail and leave you to be the strategic and make some of the critical decisions. Yeah, I think you can still get into the detail. It doesn't stop you going okay. into whatever you need to. And it makes you very good analytically. So, for example, I've got no problem understanding the accounts of a company from top to bottom. I would say mm. as good as most accountants without quite knowing what the latest rules are although we're not bad at that and and but if it came to reading 
you know, a, a report that had a hundred pages in it, I'd ask somebody to summarize it because I just got past that phase. And you do, the more senior you get, the more summaries you get. You you rarely need to read a very, very long report. So it's a sort of get out of jail by getting up the ladder a little bit. Yeah, no, definitely. And you talk about, you know, that role, that first kind of general manager, CEO mm. role, but how did your career progress from there? Because you've, you've you know, had some very high profile CEO and now chairmanship roles, haven't you? Paul? Yeah, well, the general manager's role, as I said, is with a company called Schlumberger, who are one of the biggest companies in the day. And they operated out in New York, and I was quite successful uh, with a fair bit of luck. And I would say, if I look back in my career, you do need luck, right place, right time, um, getting on with the right people, you know, which you don't realize you're doing at the time sometimes. And I got moved to the States within three years of um, having a successful general management in the, in the UK. And then I ended up with about five businesses, actually six reporting to me. And I was there eight years, then they moved me to France for a period of time, then I came back to the UK. So the good thing is I did a lot of international um, management in those different countries, but ended up back here. Then quite perversely, well, I guess perversely, uh, my very first company that sponsored me and spent money on me, sending me to learn engineering, got me back as uh, a group managing director running their aerospace and defense businesses in, in Doughty. And, um, you know, it was nice to go back and I was quite pleased to be back in the UK as well um, because, you know, I wanted to be back here as well. So that fitted good. And then after that, I got my first public CEO job with a company called Graceby. And that went pretty good. And I got uh, them headhunted to Balfour Beatty as the Group MD, which is a much bigger company. And then ended up as the CEO of VT Group, which was the old Vosbethornycroft shipbuilding business, which we grew into quite a large service business, just sort of knocking on the door of the FTSE 100. So that, that, I've just covered about 30 years. <laughs> Very quick run through. <laughs> but, but I have to say, you, you know, you, you work hard and I think you need that element of luck to go along with it. And I always say to people, you know, don't say I've got to be a CEO, I've got to be a general manager, because there's some great jobs out there as well. Mm-hmm. And it's a question of enjoying the job you're in. I've never had a job where I, I didn't really, really enjoy what I was doing and enjoyed being with the people I was working with. I've had a few bosses I could have done without as I in, in my time. But <laughs> the people I work with, I've always enjoyed it's interesting, isn't it? That piece around hard work, luck, serendipity, and all of those yeah. things come together. But fundamentally, you must have been a driven ind- individual. Were you always looking for the next opportunity, do you think? And do you think that helped your career? I think I was driven in doing the job I had at the time well. And I never really plotted anything or said I must be at a certain place in in my career. I, I've never done that. I've sort of taking the opportunities as they've come along. I, I think, again, you could get massively frustrated if you say, you know, in three years' time I want to be that, in four years' time I want to be that. Uh, as I say, things come along. If, if you do very well in the job you're in, and that's always been my goal, and, and yeah, I've worked pretty hard in those jobs and put massive hours in and travelling and you know, living abroad, because, one, I loved it and enjoyed it, and I wanted to be successful in that particular job. 
It's interesting. I'd, I want to touch on that piece about living abroad because I'm working abroad. I mean, how did you find the cultures of you know the US and France compared to the UK? Was there a big difference? Oh, totally different. Um, uh, I'd say in a business sense, because I worked for a large international group where the language of the very senior management was all English, thank God. Um, it, it, it sort of worked at that level, but at the operational level, of course, you had a very different culture. I mean, the business in Paris, on the outskirts of Paris, was very French. And although I did some uh, presentations to the workforce in, fr- in French, which I learned very much, parrot style, which I think they appreciated, well, they all clapped at the end, mainly because they didn't <laughs> think I could speak a bloody word of French, I think. But, but, but you've, you've got to manage them through the managers who understand the culture and the nuances. You can't apply your British way of living or management. Um, but fundamentally at the top, yeah, it's making the figures work, it's getting the best performance out and picking the right people to do that. So there's a lot of fundamentals the same, but you need to fit in with with the culture and that's mm. in the country as well as in the company. Yeah, and I suppose that just takes time to immerse yourself a little bit into that culture and understand rather than going like a bull in a china shop, I see. Yeah, that would go down pretty badly, particularly in France. Yeah. <laughs> but can, you've got to remember, the States is totally different. We worked in, I, I based myself in New York, but I spent a lot of time and quite a few months in, in, a, in a one period where we acquired a business in California. And you, you're in a different country. California is very different mm-hmm. to New York for example, and and many parts of the States. So, again, you have to make this transition into making sure that what you're talking about is totally understandable with them because they have a different view and a different lifestyle, very big different lifestyle. Definitely. It's the same with smaller businesses, isn't it, when they try and sell into the US and they don't think of it as 49 separate states with different kind of values, cultures, but they treat it as one and, and... Invariably, that that doesn't work. And I'm quite interested to talk about because many of the listeners to this will be ambitious owner-managed businesses um, looking to grow and develop and, you know, they're going through perhaps that investment cycle and Mm. maybe one day think about listing. And obviously, you've you've been the the CEO of a very large or number of large PLC-listed businesses. What's your view on, you know, private versus listed and perhaps some of the regulation and red tape that mm. is is around being listed you know yeah. would you take your business to the stock market i've been involved in four ipos uh, over the years and a couple more recently but um, mind you you couldn't ipo a great business right now that there's no appetite on the stock exchange for anything um but i've also worked um as chair of owner I call them owner-occupied businesses because they're occupying it, even though they might have sold a part of the business off. Mm-hmm. And they've obviously come from a very entrepreneurial background. And I think the reason they took me on is they were all going through a they were going from a, a small stroke, medium-sized business to become quite large businesses, and therefore they wanted somebody who'd been on that transition or knew what sort of structure you'd have to put in. Uh, always they were way behind on IT and also people because they tend to grow with the people that they they started the business with and they're not necessarily the people that are going to be for the future. I mean, some of them are, don't get me wrong. One of the businesses did extremely well on that, but then 
It's just um, that the smart owner knows their limitations and they know quite often to hand the reins over to a different person. Mm. Um, not always, and you know that could be quite difficult for everybody. But then to answer your other question, private equity, because I, I, I work for chairs of probably 10 or 11. Uh, I did work it out the other day. It's something like that. And, of course, that's a totally different investment proposition. Mm. They're looking at three, four, maximum five years to um, exit, but they want to improve the business. And they do invest, and they do, they're, they're more pushy to get things done. And uh, they, they understand the financial rigors of the business very well. I always say to the CFO, you're, if you thought you were on the figures, you better get on them because they're going to be all <laughs> over that. That's the one bit of the business they truly absolutely understand. They understand M&A so they can bolt businesses on and they understand superficially the marketplace. Not too much, I hope, because that's why they need people like me to fill that gap and to be the conduit often between the shareholders, which is them, and, and the management team. So that's quite a different environment, although that is changing. I can come back to that. The PLC has changed absolutely enormously. My first PLC job was in 1990, yeah. and um, th there was no women on the board. It was um, people that were semi-retired, I would call them, whereas today it's a, it's a second career. Um, for the non-executives and the chair role and the chairman of the various um, committees, Remco and uh, Audit. And they're worlds apart. I, I remember, I better not say which uh, company when I was CEO, um, that the company secretary, the chairman, used to get together and virtually write the minutes of the board meeting the next day. <laughs> 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 The chairman had a fixed view of what should go through. It's fair to say that chairman didn't last for too long. Under your tenure, and, I would and, imagine they and, didn't. Paul. And, and the end, we had a big change of the non-executive directors as well for letting it happen. But, you know, that was the good old days. And there was always a very, well, there was always a lunch. Mm. For some reason, all the board meetings were in the morning and finished at lunchtime. And then you had on site in those days, um, a lunch with wine and uh, uh, people could smoke. And uh, I mean, if I look back now, you go, what the hell was going on? But certainly uh, as I progressed, it was um, very much um, a sandwich lunch, no alcohol, and yeah. that's the same with everybody. And let's you know, crack on with days, it. <laughs> those days have absolutely gone because absolutely. it was a bit of jobs for the boys. Yeah. There were some professional chairmen, but there was a lot of, you know, it's it's getting money quite easily for doing a job that you don't have the rigor. Today, it's totally different. I think everybody goes into the non-exec world now as a professional non-executive director. They get trained. They understand the rules, which are changing on a pretty regular basis. We've got ESG now um, to look after in, a, in, in addition to a lot of regulation. What's my view on the regulation? You can see why they're doing it. Some of it is over the top, and I think most chair and CEOs would agree with that. But they are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to protect shareholders from management teams that have gone off the rails. You know, Carillion being a, a good example of a large company that, um, well, there's plenty to, to mm. point out to. Um, so they're trying to prevent that, and they're trying to help 
um, in terms of the environment and social responsibility. So, yeah, no, I, I think the majority are good changes, but it's, um, you know, it's, you've got to be careful you don't fill the board meetings up with with all the things I've just mentioned. With all the procedural stuff. You, yeah. You've got to keep that to a minimum and you've got to rely on your company secretary and legal counsel who who do have to go through that in detail and tell us what, what we're compliant on and what we're not and what we have to do to get compliant and why. Yeah. And then we follow that. And how are we doing? We have KPIs to make sure that we're fitting, you know, into the... We aim for the top quartile in, in my businesses, and that works. And it's funny that the PE companies now, a lot of their lenders, because they, they take people's money for their funds, also have ESG requirements. So you you can see it's gravitating to a similar place, but PE will do the minimum because they want the maximum attention onto the business. Yeah, and you can see that, can't you? But it, the PE world does drive that. You're talking about it, just drive momentum, doesn't it? Um, and do, do you see the PE sector very active at the current moment in time? Oh, not really, no. Um, it's uh, it, it's very dull. Uh, it, there are signs that it's picking up a little bit, um, but it's all about interest rates at the end of the day. Can they mm. borrow money, buy a business, put some equity in, and, and make the arithmetic work and still yeah. get... 20% return in three years' time, really difficult. What, what you've seen is some of the big uh, private equity companies, uh, particularly American ones, actually buying a business, whether that's uh, a listed business or a private business, and paying a pretty reasonable price, but not borrowing money because they've, they've got enough in their funds that they can buy it and then re refinance in 12, 18 months' time whenever interest rates mm -hmm. start to um, head towards a, a, a sensible figure, whatever that is. So I think the big guys are rolling around, and sometimes they do put a bit of debt in. I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating to make mm -hmm. the point. But your av average mid-market PE finds it quite difficult to, one, sell their businesses and buy businesses. So it's, it's um, a, pretty, a pretty dull place right now. Yeah, but that does mean there's lots of funds locked up, isn't there, with the PEs not being deployed. And but, that's not right. good for the PE houses and their investors, but it's not good for business as a whole, is it? There relies on that injection yeah. of capital to stimulate growth. Yeah, because it's uh, people don't realise PE invest. They put money into businesses um, because they want, want to get that extra return. Whereas if you're a public company, you know, you've got to every six months report to your shareholders and they want to know what you've done with your cash. And, you know, they, they follow the same theme. But with PE, for example, they're quite prepared for a company to go into, a, you know, a low profit period if it's investing money and buying businesses. So long as in years two you come out of it looking mm -hmm. good, and by year three you're looking very good. You, you couldn't sell that to a public no. They think you. They think you've gone mad. <laughs> um, unless, unless, of course, you were a high tech business and you sold them the dream that in three, four years' time, yeah. you're losing money, but you're going to come out the other side. You're going to be the next unicorn. Yeah. yeah. And some, <laughs> some do, to be fair, but others do crash and burn. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. I'm, I'm also interested in, you know, obviously your your spell and time within the latter part of your career you know, non-exec as a chair and, and maybe some hints and tips, you know, for a successful owner-managed, I like the word owner-occupied, but owner-managed uh, business, 
And what they should be looking for is they're saying, right, actually, I, you know, I've started the business, I've founded it, I've driven it for 15, 20 years. Right. It's really successful now, but I need to step away. But part of that is I need to put in place some non-execs or put in place a chairman. And some hints and tips on what they should do to make those appointments? Well, one, they should do that very professionally and hire an appropriate um, search company. Don't do it. You know who do you know? Can you mm. tell me? Who, you know it, that 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 will get you somebody, but it won't get you the best people. I think also they they're going to have to have some sector knowledge because one thing founders have and owners they they absolutely know their particular sector from top to bottom. So somebody coming in will need to have that ability, particularly if it's the chair. You get away a little bit if you've got to put a Remco in or an audit because you need financial and um, the, the Remco rules. And but, but still, they'd have to come from a similar sector. Otherwise, everybody would be you know, heading in different directions. But also, and this is the, the best piece of advice, the owner has to have the right chemistry with those people. Mm. You know, they're not going to they're, they're not going to put up with people that they don't like involved in their business at that level. Yeah, you know, they, they, they need to like the people and respect the people. And those, those individuals need to add value. The one thing owners um, hate is wasting money. Yeah. And yeah, and they see through somebody that can't do the role quite quickly, don't they? And but that, Very, and yeah. if they have a bad experience, you know, I've seen this yeah. within our client base, that can put people off making those appointments and then hold the whole business back. I've seen that happen many times, actually. What you just said, and mm -hmm. um, you know, that might be good because if uh, you know, if, if that's what they want to do, that's what they want to do. They they hold the final cards. But I think I think they there's two reasons why they will go down that route. One they can monetize all the effort they've made or a big mm. percentage of it. And two, it's getting a bit much for them. Yeah. And and those are the two drivers usually. Now, are they going to admit to both of those? And they might have a third one, might be family, might be something else. Who knows? It depends on the individual, but they don't always say that's what they want to do. <laughs> no, definitely. Definitely not. And, you know, how have you found that transition? Because you're obviously now chairman. Um, obviously being a very successful CEO, I mean, was it a very difficult transition in those first few early years of swapping roles? Well, I think very important, um, particularly if you're a CEO or, you know, a senior exec can do it as well, but let's take the CEO role. I started going on other people's boards probably six or seven years, oh, more than that, 10 years before I finished being a CEO. Okay. I did it a bit, again, a bit by accident. Somebody said, oh, come and sit on our board and 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 you'll be a great... And I went, oh, God, do I really want to do that? I'm really busy. And and I thought, oh, okay, I'll do it. And I had to get approval from my then chair to do it. And they went, oh, that'd be great. You'll get some experience. I think now I would encourage any CEO or exec, go and sit on somebody else's board because you learn how to listen and absorb and give advice and it demonstrates also to people who might want to hire you as a chair x years later that you have that ability because that's the problem mm. you, a ceo finds it hard to sit and listen to people <laughs> you know you want to, you want to quiz them you want to quit you you want to give them your thoughts you know it's a debate but actually 
if you're the CEO of a business and the CFO, you want to get over all your points. And you might ask, you know, and then people can give their advice. It's a different world, it really is. But you, you learn, and you learn so much. It was, the bit I found really uh, good about it was I'd go and listen to somebody else's problems and and I forgot about mine for the four hours <laughs> that you were in the boardroom. But by the time you got in the car park or back on the train, all yours came flooding back. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes with a different perspective, isn't it? Because you have taken that time yeah. out of you've seen different Yeah, view. no, no. It's, it's, it, it's all part of learning because you always learn some good things that, from the company that you sit on the board and you bring some good thoughts and ideas from your experience mm. of your board. So it is it is a win-win um, if it's done, if you've got the right people. And we've talked about how maybe the conduct in the board, you know, boardroom has changed or the process has changed over the years. But how do you think your leadership, leadership style changed over that period of your oh, 10 years? Oh, yeah, God. I, I absolutely believe, and I haven't heard this from anybody else, so I might be wrong, that, that management's a fashion. And it changes, I reckon, about every five years, because there's always something coming along, usually a technology or techniques. And don't forget, there's a lot of, you, there's, there's mentoring now, there's coaching. That didn't happen 20 years ago. <laughs> it was 30 years ago, it, you know, you were just almost told what to do. Um, uh, with a, with a pat on the back or a kick up the backside, it, I mean it's changed enormously, and and there's a lot more interest in the psychological aspects of management now. But I finished being a CEO ten years ago, and social media was just coming in, you know, in terms of a big way. And I, I mean how you could drop yourself in it using social media. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, thank God I missed that because <laughs> sure I would have dropped myself in it. Um, but so you've got to be very um, social media aware. You've got to know how to use the internet, how you're going to market your products. It has just changed. So I absolutely believe, and if I look back, every five years has been major changes. Mm. And you need to change with them. Yeah. If you stay as you are, you'll you'll die on that particular job you really will and i think you've got to hire people and surround you with people who have all those new techniques as well and and you know a lot of people can still learn them i'm not you know don't give up on the yeah. people because they they do and our children are, are, are headed in that direction if you've got teenagers or children at university or they've started their job listen listen to what they say about their uh, employers or how they go about life with social media and how they communicate it's totally different you know in the, if you go to school it's a more relaxed you know almost the teacher sits on the edge of the desk and chats and you know has a social um, influence on the kids much more than we did we all sat there and I, I, you know I can remember years ago you'd stand up if the headmaster walked into the room yeah, I mean yeah. those days are completely gone. So <laughs> world, have. But thank God, the world is completely <laughs> different, and you've got to move with the world. Um, uh, a big believer in it, and that yeah. makes it exciting and it makes it interesting. It, it'd be boring if it was just the same old, same old, it, same old. Yeah, here's 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 the answers to everybody's question. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's got to be true, isn't it? That longevity of success in business, whether it's your own business, whether you're the CEO yeah. or whatever, it is. Yeah. 
adapting to change, isn't it? And having that growth mindset. Yeah, and, and using some of that change to your advantage. You know, mm. you've got AI coming along. Uh, well, it's here. I mean, one of my businesses that um, sold recently, uh, we used to call it machine learning, which it was, but now it's called AI because it mm. is yeah. AI. You know, that's learning people's habits, elderly people's habits um, uh, in in retirement homes so that if they change those habits, there might be something wrong um, mm, okay. or because you know, we've got sensors in, the, in, in their apartments not cameras or anything that's obtrusive and totally unacceptable but it's, it's profiling that person and you could they can even wear you know a watch that measures the vital statistics that are going on in their body and if they go out for that person but it might be wrong for one person but not another then you can get a, a, an alarm or, or a call into um, whoever their carer is or um, whoever they want to, really, and they can then give them a call and say, "Oh, your blood pressure's looking, you know, a bit on the height." Yeah. So there's so many positives that can come out of it. Yeah, there is. I mean, that, that's the exciting side of AI, isn't it, in technology and yeah. how it can change our lives. Is there anything that concerns you about AI and technology? Well, yeah, I mean, I, w- I would say it's the usual one. That I guess most people would point to, which is fraud. And not only fraud where people can hack into your, let's say, bank accounts, because that's an easier one, but also to simulate somebody's voice perfectly. So I could get a call from one of my kids saying I'm in trouble can, mm. you know, I, and my wallet's gone, my cards are gone. Can you send some? I, I'm, obviously, I think I'd, most people are aware of that. But when you when you think AI can will be able to simulate mm. and, and sound perfectly like an individual, um that's a bit scary for people using that in a fraudulent or uh, unacceptable way but those are just little things and i think the thing is is to be you know for, for every negative like that there has to be a positive to block it and and that becomes a new business for somebody as well so but if you listen to musk we're all going to lose our jobs but then he's a bit of a nutcase anyway <laughs> um, and, yeah. and I said, well, if you can replace my football team with robots that win games, then that would be quite good, but that's <laughs> oh. never going to happen. And there's plenty of jobs that will... I think some of the trivial jobs will go, and that's mm. not bad for the individuals because I, I always think uh, as a management style, you want your employees to really enjoy coming to work. If they enjoy coming to work and they enjoy their job, you are in a great place as long as you're looking after them with the, you know, the right pay and environmental and all the things that we said. Mm. But unfortunately, there's a lot of people go to work um, who don't enjoy what they're doing. No. And if that gets replaced and they can be retrained, um, even retained to put up with leisure, yeah, you know, that might be it. Or perhaps they look after the elderly or the care or whatever because you you know you can have robots doing all sorts of things but there has to be individual interaction that's why um, we're humans isn't it for that, yeah, that yeah, interaction yeah. with people you know yeah but anyway it'd be interesting to see what happens over the next 20 30 years but Definitely. um but uh, there will be change for a lot for the better i think the better will outstrip the bad yeah i'm, I'm with you on that one I absolutely agree as long as we kind of keep a lid on it and put some regulation around it and understand yeah. what we're dealing with then it's yeah. got to be a positive for the future hasn't it absolutely yeah 
And we've talked about a lot of your successes, but when you look back on your career, is there, you know, is there one thing that you would change? Perhaps one kind of situation that you dealt with that you would have, on hindsight, dealt with differently? Well, yeah, I think um, when I started this chairman role, you're a little bit hungry for um, for chairmanships because you know you're not sure anybody's going to choose you. So yeah. I think my second one, um, I was invited by a, a really great PE company, by the way. Uh, they were they're still one of my favourites. Would I chair two and a half thousand lawyers? Okay, that's a bit different to engineering. I don't have to tell you anymore. <laughs> it was a nightmare. Okay, an absolute nightmare. You can't get them to do anything. This was <laughs> the, the idea was we were going to turn them into a slick business and offer lower cost legal services by outsourcing some of the stuff they did about a quarter of it to South Africa. They didn't want to do it. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what it taught me was uh, never tread out of yeah. your environment. I'm an engineer. I spent all my time in engineering and the construction industry. Why on earth I took the job to look after lawyers? I don't know. <laughs> Seemed like a good opportunity at the time, no, but I yeah, don't envy you with that one. I would say stick to what you're good at, um, even though you might get fascinated by doing something else. But uh, yeah, that, that was hard work. Brilliant. And when you look back, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received, Paul? Oh, God. You know, you know, if I if I would go right back to when I was at school, but I think it, it does travel a bit more than when you're at school. Um, I, I was always sports mad and, and still am. And um, my headmaster got me, I was asked to go to the headmaster's office, which is, you knew that was serious in those days. And um, he said, and I, I dropped down in the class and I, I was a council house boy and didn't go to grammar school. I ended up in grammar school, but that was after the, and he, and he said to me, if you put the same effort into your studies as you do to sport, you're going to be really good. And I went home and my parents said, did your headmaster talk to you today? Because he rang us and said what he's going to say to you. And I said, yeah. And so I thought about it. I thought, okay, I'm going to have a go at these GCSC things that are coming up. Yeah. And, um, and suddenly I did quite well. And then I got transferred to the grammar school and did A-levels. And Off you went. So that, if it wasn't for that... I mean, I might have played for Man United. Well, West Bromwich Albion's my team. <laughs> I, I think that's very unlikely. <laughs> but all I wanted to do was play football and sport. Yeah, and, yeah and with my mates. and yeah. So, I mean, if it wasn't for that, I, would, I definitely wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. It's that bit of serendipity and sometimes that one person that intervenes, isn't it, and makes you just yeah, sit up and listen. That happens in yeah. life, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Definitely. And, you know, my parents were saying it, he was saying it, and I thought, well, I better, I better knuckle down. I wanted to do both, and I think I managed just about to do both. But, yeah, I, I, yeah I, I'd rather play sport than do my homework, basically. Sounds like West Bromwich Alban is still a passion for you. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was born three miles from the ground. Um, actually, I've made exaggeration now. It's just under four, but it gets closer every time I tell the story. <laughs> and um, yeah, it was the it, you end up supporting your local team in those days, and definitely I've stuck with it. But it's it, it it's a good way of I season ticket holder with my first family actually, and um, 
it, it's good because you watch it and you're thinking about that instead of anything else. Yeah. It's 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 good relief if you can call it that. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think it's good having an external interest and um, absolutely. Yeah, quite important actually. Definitely. And what are some of your most important principles, Paul, both in business and in life? Um, I think it's. I mean, I enjoy everything I do. Um, it sounds crazy, but I really do. I love going to the various businesses I have now. I look forward to my board meetings uh, because I'm seeing what, what I believe is the team I work with. And I want them to enjoy it as well. I always say to new board members, I really want you to see our particular board meeting in your diary and you look forward to it. Yeah. Or if you're coming on a company event, you look forward to it because you're mixing with people that you really like. The chemistry is good and there's good humour. And I think people forget that um, having humour um, around even what used to be, I think, stuffy board meetings is good. But having it in your relationships, not everybody wants to smile and have a laugh. But I, I think you can probably tell from um, this podcast that yeah. I do like to, um, you know, find amusing things to talk about. So I think it really enjoying what you do. And I always say to you, <laughs> This is where um, parents have probably stopped doing it, but I'd often get parents who've got their um, one of their children, or two of them in one case, um, coming up to finish their A-levels and go to university, and they're going, you know, I really I want them to be an accountant or a lawyer, and they're talking about something. And I, I have a chat with them, so they come round, and I, I say to them, what, what are you really good at? What do you really like doing? And they say, whatever, you know, I love history or I love... And I go, go and do that. Mm, I definitely. said, because if you love what you do and, and you're good at it, the two have to go together, do you know what? You're going to do really well at it. If, if you follow, you must become a lawyer or an accountant. You become a very average one <laughs> and you're probably very unhappy doing it. Yeah. So they go back and tell their parents and, and they, I never hear from them again. <laughs> But it is great advice. It yeah. is great advice. It is, and, and they've all done well. Yeah, um, that's the point. You know, over the years, I keep a track of them, and whatever they're doing, they they do very well at it. They might not make the most money in life, yeah. but are they happy? And you can make a lot of money. You know, in, in doing the things that you love and like. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. I often say I've got two daughters, and I often say it to them is that you know all I want you to do is to find the thing that makes you happy. And do yeah. your best at it. Not be the best. If you end up being the best, great. But just yeah. be do your best at what you do. I think that's a good way of doing it. I usually say and work hard at it as well because, mm. you know, if you use the sport analogy, you can have some very talented um, footballers or athletes. But unless you absolutely work your socks off, you're not going to be the best. Mm. You're, you're, you'll be okay, but to be the best, you've got to work hard takes dedication doesn't it definitely absolutely yeah. um and we've got introduced you know the reason you're on the podcast is uh claire gale at um lewis manning hospice care introduced us so why is it important for you i know you're a big supporter of them and other charities why is it important to you paul to give back um i do a few charities really and um um i um my father uh, died in a hospice, or, although it was a reasonable one. Um, you know, it was um, set up by his doctor, who he knew very well. Um, but it, it, and that was the first time I'd come across it, and I suddenly realised that 
um, what Claire promotes is having people looked after at home. Mm-hmm. And what she says is, you know, no one wants to die in a hospital or a hospice. They want, if they're going to choose, they die at home. Yeah. So that that definitely clicked with me. But then I do the R&I because yeah. um, I think they're a great charity, and nice. I, I live I live in Pool where they're, they're based, and I've got a boat, so you, you never know when you need them. <laughs> um, and I do Sported, um, which is a charity for getting mainly kids, but underprivileged people into sport. Brilliant. And uh, I always think, you know, that's a great thing to do. So th- all those things have some relevance to my uh, life, um, and I think that's why I support them. Perfect. And the final definition as we wrap up our conversation, Paul, is what's your personal definition of success? Well, um, it, it, it's probably the hardest question you've asked. Um, I would say I want my children. Uh, I, I don't want to worry about my children financially and that they're set up. So I'm making sure I give them enough money so they can have a house without a mortgage. Uh, let's put it like that. And um, so that they're in a great position. Um, so I find that a definition of success. It's like um, I, I did one on the Times once where they they always asked, does money motivate you? And I went, yeah. And they went, you're not supposed to say that. Because <laughs> <laughs> everybody says no. But I am motivated by money. And I think a lot of people, particularly uh, that when, when, you, when you're making lots of money, and I'm, I'm not in the league of billionaires or multimillionaires, but why do they keep going? Because money is almost like a scorecard to them. Mm, yeah. You know, it, it, their success, they'll never admit it, but part of their recognition of the level of success is, you know, can they make their first 100 million, 10 million, whatever the figure is. So I have been a bit of a counter on, on the money, um, mainly because I've got two families, two, um, uh, I always call them two wives, two families. Mm-hmm, yeah. And, and two lots of children and um and you know it's an expensive business that's all i can say <laughs> and I'd, I'd also say i'm listening to a little bit of you know first time we've spoken but listening to your story is from that background is that there must have been a lot of that financial piece which is about creating security and now that's not oh, you've, totally, totally. and you've created it's, the security for yourself yeah. but it's now how can you do that for your next the next generation and the generation after 100 yeah, yeah I, I want my kids to have security and I want their children. I've got, um, so I have to count them on three, <laughs> uh, three grandchildren, I have to get that right. And, um, you know, and I want them to be secure as well. And then, you know, I'm happy. Yeah, good. Paul, thank you for being an incredible guest on the Evolve to Succeed podcast and great insights there for our listeners. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Warren. Thank you for listening to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. My hope with every episode is that you've learned something new or heard something that challenged your way of thinking and further motivated you on your path towards becoming a more knowledgeable, informed and inspired individual and business leader. And don't forget, if you'd like to learn more about Evolve and the services we offer and how we can help you and your business confidently start, grow and exit, then please go to evolveadvisory.co.uk. Please also help and support this podcast 
by subscribing, liking, and giving us a positive review on your favorite listening platform. Thanks for listening and see you next week.